This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We have Dr. Vincente, founder of this meeting. He's going to talk to us about the um, emergence of a new therapeutic landscape and transplantation. Again, thank you to Dr. Vincenti for all the guidance he's given me. Thanks a lot. <clears throat> well, it's great to be here and see so many old faces and uh, colleagues. <coughs> uh, the uh, um, futuristic landscape, basically, uh, it's because I think uh, the drugs that... Uh, that are emerging now, uh, they have the potential of being transformational for transplantation. So it's exciting that we are testing these drugs at UCSF. It's also exciting that uh, you know many of these trials. I'm collaborating with um, my young colleagues, who at some point, hopefully, they're going to carry the effort forward. A few months ago, Tom Pockert was calling the KTU and answered the phone. And he said, Flavio, it's at you? I said, yes. He said, well, I had rumors you had uh, retired. I said, no, that's false. I'm still working. And I told him also uh, the rumors that I will never retire are also greatly exaggerated. <laughs> so that will happen at some point. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, over the past years, uh, the past maybe 19 years, we've had one drug that has been approved, uh, Bellatasa. So the pace of innovation has really slowed down a lot. Uh, and, of course, there are still important unmet needs. And, you know, I divided them in two categories. One is to have a more robust, toxicity-free, CNI-free regimen, a drug that will do away once and for all, uh, potentially with both uh, steroids, CNI, and maybe even antiproliferative and, of course, <laughs> the big area that is still requires a lot of innovation as the whole humoral part of the immune response. Uh, and, you know, Belatacep, when was uh, approved, this is uh, uh, a figure that shows uh, the Belatacep drug fusion receptor protein that binds to CD8086 and blocks it from binding to the receptor CD28 and activating the T cells. Since this drug was a replacement for calcineurin inhibitors, we were you know, hoping it becomes the mainstay of immunosuppression. And uh, this is one of two articles on Belatacept that we published in the New England Journals with our co-investigators. And, you know, clearly there is a lot of fascination, but also some degree of uh, frustration as to how to use best this drug. As you can see from the figure, the left upper shows that uh, with Belatacep, over seven years, uh, we obtained better patient and graft survival because it's a CNI-free uh, drug or regimen. The GFR is uh, superior to patients who are on calcineurin inhibitors. Surprisingly, but not anymore, uh, there were uh, lost less donor-specific antibodies. But the Achilles heel of Belatacep is that at the beginning, despite the best long-term outcome, there was a higher rate of rejection and sometimes really severe cellular rejection. So, you know, uh, other things that we have discovered about Belatacep, and this uh, ties in, uh, with some of its newer uh, uses and the fact that patients on it do not develop 
antibodies is that it blocks T follicular helper cells. So it blocks the formation or the differentiation of B cells, their activation differentiation into plasma cells, both as a primary and also in, in recall response. So, and this is going to be, I think, an important way uh, to utilize uh, belatacin. So we have been over the past uh, couple of years trying to get a regimen uh, that uh, decreases the acute early rejection. And this is a study that uh, uh, we published uh, uh, that showed that when we used uh, two doses of thymol uh, instead of uh, um, basiliximab induction, so a bit of depletion. And most importantly, what we did is that we used four weeks of, of mycophenolate mofetil and converted patients to mTOR inhibitor, in this case, everolimus. There is some quite a bit of experimental literature that co-stimulation blockade, like belatacep, uh, is synergistic with the mTOR inhibitors. So uh, in this study of, uh, initial study of 44 patients, we were able to decrease rejection rate to 11%. So this is pretty close to what you get with tacrolimus. And then what's interesting, that all the rejection occurred only in the patients we could not convert to everolimus, or we converted them, did not tolerate, went back. I mean, so this is great, except that, you know, about 35 to 40% of patients do not uh, tolerate the mTOR. So this is, remains a challenge. So we wanted to apply so-called precision medicine, and this is uh, a study that uh, Jun Shoji uh, uh, was uh, directing. And so what we did, we said, okay, let's take the next 20 patients and profile their uh, T-cell subset and see if we can determine whether there is a specific phenotype, especially memory cells that we know are resistant to co-stimulation. And then if we show that, then maybe we can, um, if we demonstrate that, then we can select out these patients. And in fact, we found that patients who had high levels of a CD8-positive, CD28-negative T-cells these patients had a, a significantly higher risk of uh, rejection. And it kind of made sense because we're trying to block CD28 with belatacep. So if the cells don't have CD28, they're not going to be certainly uh, sensitive to this blockade. Uh, and as you can see on, on the right side, uh, uh, the, <clears throat> when we stimulated these cells with donor antigen, they produce a lot of TNF. Uh, alpha, and we could not suppress them with melatacin. Uh, however, as I said, uh, you know, as we put more patients into the next selection of patients where we selected out those patients who had high levels of uh, CD28 negative cells, we still encounter some rejection. So it, it's still a process, a work in process. So if we want to go to a towards a zero rejection rate with Bella. One approach, and I think a simple approach would be, is uh, that if we cannot convert patient to mTOR, or they cannot tolerate it and they have to be put back on mycophenolate mofetil, is to stop belatacep and put them on tacrolimus. And if we want them to be even more sophisticated, is that six months later, maybe we can then study the phenotype of cells and then convert for the long-term benefit of belatacem, convert them from tacrolimus back to bella, only those patients that we feel are going to be responsive to it. So, you know, I think at some point we'll, we'll, 
we'll get it right. Uh, so coming back to the CNI free regiment, so how can we maybe uh, sort of in a more proactive way, improve Belatasep with newer regiments. And there are two approaches. And the first one is to use, is to use Belatasep with another biologic, and, or, or maybe two. One of them would be a blockade of AL6, and the other one anti-CD40. Let me tell you about the AL6 uh, cytokine. Does undermine the efficacy of belatasep uh, because it, uh, it decreases T-Rex cells, which are already affected negatively by co-stimulation blockade, and increases effector cell activity. And there is a on the market now a uh, a blocker of AL6 receptor antibody called uh, that is used in in uh, in patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So. Uh, when we used it in a small trial with uh, Sindhu Chandran, I did, we performed this trial about two, three, two, three years ago. Uh, when we blockaded the AL6 uh, receptor, we saw a marked increase in uh, T-Rex cells. And experimentally, this is a series of studies that have been done. These are uh, mouse that transplanted with, uh, uh, with, uh, heart tra- with hearts. And you can see that if they're treated with CTR4IG, which is the first-generation Belatasep, they're rejected right away. On the other hand, when CTR4IG was combined with blockade of IL-6, there was marked prolong of uh, the graft. And so this is one of the studies we we are planning to do. The second study is to use Belatasep with anti-CD40. Now, why are we using anti-CD40? The CD40, CD40 ligand pathway is another co-stimulatory pathway in many ways. It is both important in T-cell activation. It's also important in activating the B-cells. And so uh, the combination can be very powerful. There are several agents that are, be, are being tested that block CD40, CD40 pathway. Uh, one of them, uh, I won't discuss the first one, ASKP. This is a stu- a, the first anti-CD40 that was used I don't think it was very effective because its mode of action was not optimal. The second one is called CFZ533. This is an anti-CD40 from Novartis, and we'll soon be starting studies with this drug. This is basically at least the protocol that is uh, uh, that we are going to be using in a multicenter trial is going to replicate what we have done with belatasep. In other words, a CNI-free regimen with MMF and, and steroids. And the third one, uh, potentially in terms of regimen more exciting, is VIB4920. And this one is a protein that blocks the ligand, the CT40 ligand. So a uh, few words about uh, CFZ5 to 3 escalimab. This is, as I said, it's a, going to be uh, a study upon you know, conventional ways of developing and registering a study. Uh, the first cohort is going to be patient de novo that are going to be randomized to two groups of CFZ533 uh, with MMF and steroids versus the standoff care tacrolimus. The one advantage of this study that was not present in previous anti-CD40 studies, that here we could use either basiliximab induction or thymoglobulin. And I think these CNI-free regimens do benefit from some upfront depletion of uh, lymphocyte and getting rid maybe of some of the uh, memory cells. Uh, 
the second the study is the one where we're going to be converting patients six months to two years who are on tacrolimus, uh, who have a decent GFR, but you know may still have uh, toxicities, whether neurologic or other toxicities, uh, from uh, from tacrolimus, and then we randomize them either to stop tacrolimus and be treated with the anti-CD40, or be in the control group and continue tacrolimus. And then, of course, primary endpoint is GFR and other parameters. So I mentioned the VIB for 920, and this is a uh, a, a fusion protein. Uh, it's not an antibody that binds to CD40 ligand, rather than the receptor. It binds to the ligand, and so it should, in theory, achieve the same uh, uh, thing in terms of blocking the the CD40 CD40 ligand uh, pathway. Now. Uh, this is coming from a small company, and therefore uh, we convinced them, uh, along with uh, Alan Kirk at Duke, to do a more experimental trial. This is clearly a higher risk, uh, but in this trial, we're going to bind, combine two co-stimulation blockades. We're going to combine belatocept and the anti-CD40 ligand. And in this trial, patients, uh, this is a single-arm trials will also, of course, not be on tacrolimus, but also after a few days, we're going to stop uh, uh, steroids, and they will not be on antiproliferative. So this is going to be sort of pure co-stimulation blockade. And we are excited about this trial because of a very important sort of an iconic uh, experimental study that was published in 1996 by the group at Emory, where they took mice that were uh, transplanted with allogeneic hearts or skin and treated them with the combination. And what they achieved is, for example, when the two co-stimulation blockers were used, CTR4IG, which is first-generation Bella, and MR1, which was an anti-CD40 ligand, they got the hearts totally clear from any evidence of inflammation. And in the most stringent model of transplantation, skin transplant, the combination of this drug induced uh, tolerance. So we're excited to see whether we can reproduce uh, uh, this combo in our uh, patients and get rid basically of all the toxic agents that we use or the ones that give side effects uh, uh, to the majority of patients. So uh, another interesting drug that is hopefully going to be developed, and we're gonna, we have a study that is being supported by NIH, is called lulizumab. And, and instead of basically using belatacept, which bind to, this, to the ligand CD8086, we're going to target the receptor CD28, so much more specific. And this is, of course, a non a non-agonistic uh, blocker. Now, why is this so important? When we use belatacept, we obviously block the activation of the CD28 positive receptor, which activates the T cells, but we also do not allow the negative pathway, CTL4, CTL4 to bind to the two ligands and produce inhibitory signals. At the same time, on the Tregs, Tregs require... Uh, signaling through CD28 and CTL4, one for survival, the other one for their suppressor function. So with belatacept, we are blocking 
survival, the fitness, as well as the function of T-Rex. So if we have a, uh, an agent, an antibody, a non-agonistic antibody that blocks the CD28 uh, directly, allowing uh, the two ligands, CD80, 86, to interact with the negative receptor, CTL4, it may add more immunosuppression to the T cells, and it may allow better function of the, of the T-Rex. And in fact, uh, we have a study called the LINK trial that we're going to be starting hopefully in a few months uh, with uh, uh, Sindhu Chandran uh, that is supported again by the CTOT group, which is the uh, NIH, to do a study comparing uh, the anti-CD28 called Dulizumab versus Belatasep. And so let me move, because we don't have much time now, to the final uh, part of this talk, and that's how do we improve uh, humoral immune responses. As you all know, uh, at UCSF, we have not been very hot about desensitization because we felt for a long time that the current regimen with the rituximab, IVIG, uh, plasmaphoresis, or the proteosome inhibitors that induce apoptosis of plasma cells, which is you know, fairly toxic, uh, are not that effective. And so we have not been uh, that much involved with, uh, uh, with desensitization. However, uh, and the important thing of that is that if you don't have effective agent to desensitize, the patient continues to have donor-specific antibodies. If they develop, and they frequently do, uh, antibody-mediated rejection, the outcome of that kidney is poor. And I think we've seen the result of these issues when we send patients to various centers to get desensitized, get transplanted, come back and have quite a bit of problems with, uh, with both acute and chronic antibody-mediated rejection. So a study that we um, are planning to do, and this study is supported by the Immune Tolerance Network. It's called ATTAIN. And, you know, we always like to play with these acronyms, uh, which stands for, uh, Cindy and I kind of worked on this to come up with the acronym. I forgot whether she or I came up with it. So this is, uh, stands for a mechanistically tailored therapy to desensitize 100% PRA patients with depletion of plasma cells with anti-CD38. This is the anti-38 that Alison just mentioned, daratumumab, that uh, basically... Uh, uh, kills plasma cells, and prevention of B-cell activation with co-stimulation blockade. So instead of showing you many slides, uh, because of time, I'll just discuss this directly. If you just induce apoptosis of plasma cell, what happens is you get homostatic activation of the germinal cells, you get a lot of activation of B-cells, and, uh, and production of... Uh, antibodies so that you undermine the effectiveness of what you do. <laughs> Number two, if you just uh, target the germinal centers, you still have the plasma cells. Or if you target B cells, like with rituximab, the plasma cells are not affected by rituximab. They, don't, they are CD20 negative, and they continue to produce antibodies. So this dual approach is the following. We kill the plasma cells with with daratumumab, the anti-CD38 antibody, and we neutralize the germinal centers with uh, belatacep. And as I said, belatacep has this effect on the 
germinal centers because it prevents the T follicular helper cells from activating the naive uh, B cells and the formation of the germinal centers. So the, the question is, why do you want to do anything about uh, uh, highly sensitized patients since the new allocation system gives you a lot of points for people who are highly sensitized? And that's true. Starting at 80%, PRA of 80%, you get a couple of points. When you reach 90, you get some more points, four to six. 98% CPRA, uh, they get 24 points. 99, they get 50 points. Every point is one year on the wait list. So they could get transplanted right away if they get a compatible kidney. And of course, 100% PRA get 200 points. The issue is that 34% uh, uh, of patients who have a PRA of 99 to 100% on, are on the wait list in, the gr in this group have 99.95% PRA. So in the old days, I used to think, well, 100% PRA is 100% PRA, and 99 is 99. But actually, when you look at the PRA in terms of decimal point, there is a big change. So you have a 99, so you, the, the PRA is always reported as a full number. So anything between 99, 99.4, 99.5 is reported as 99%. From 99.56 on, that is automatically reported as 100% PRA. But as you can see, there is a big difference in terms of compatibility, finding compatible kidneys between the decimal points. So a 99.96 patient, PRA patient, can still find kidneys, maybe one in 1,500 kidneys could be compatible. On the other hand, a 99.98 will start requiring thousands of patients to find one that is compatible. And 99.99, basically, they are very difficult to find kidneys. So what we want to do, in, and so these patients have really not benefited from the new allocation system. So uh, uh, as our first approach, we want to take these patients who have a PRA of 99.5 or greater that have been on dialysis for a year. Many of these patients have been on dialysis over eight years, waiting for a kidney transplant. Uh, treat them with, let me see if I have the, treat them with daratumumab, so we kill the plasma cells. Give them belatacep, a couple of doses, so we prevent the activation of the germinal centers. And if they if we can <laughs> lower their CPRA from 99.99 to 99.6, which doesn't sound much, but in fact, in terms of finding likely compatible kidney increases by more than 10-fold, even maybe 100-fold. And so these patients will be able to get transplanted. So this is going to be the first proof-of-concept study. Of course, you know, if this works well and it's safe, we hope to, um, uh, to expand it to maybe a, a more wider scope of patients with, uh, uh, with, uh, who are highly sensitized with antibodies. Possibly in the future, patients who may not want to go through NKR, who have a living donor with, one D, with DSA, we may be able to also uh, treat them. Uh, beyond that, you know, the treatment of AMR is still inadequate. So patients who have AMR 
may require also the same approach. So dual therapy uh, for uh, or target multiple target therapies are, I believe, required to produce effective desensitization and probably control AMR. So hopefully we'll finally have a breakthrough uh, in this uh, difficult area. And then more effective blockade of co-stimulation pathway may provide a uh, desired toxicity-free uh, simplified immunosuppression, without CNI, without steroids, without antiproliferative. So when the patient comes to visit you in the clinic, say, show me the bottle of immunosuppression. They say, I have none. I go once a month and have an infusion, and that's going to be it. And uh, thank you for listening. Well, if there are no questions, great, because we need the time to move on. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, yes, yes, good. I mean, there is a lot of stuff that I had to kind of uh, go over quickly. So, you know, uh, almost 20 years ago, the first study that we did with co-stimulation was an antibody to CD40 ligand. And in fact, the study uh, was in, uh, in collaboration with Alan Kirk. The problem is that when we started the study, uh, we were not aware that the FC portion of the antibody binds to the FC receptor of platelet, cross-links, and produce thromboembolic events. So several patients had thromboembolic events, uh, one patient in the study actually died. And then when the, the, the anti-CD40 ligand was used in a lupus study, they had the same thing. So now we understood the mechanism of action. So the new generation of CD40 ligand antibody, like the one that we want to use, first of all, they don't have an FC portion. In fact, in fact they don't have an antibody. They, have, they are uh, novel proteins that bind to CD40 and neutralize its action. Uh, without any risk of thromboembolic disease. There are other domain antibodies also out there uh, without the FC that, or FC mutated and the antibody uh, that do not um, combine to CD40 ligand and do not induce any thromboembolic uh, 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 complications. So I think that that issue is behind us. And the CD40, anti-CD40, of course, have, not, have never had anything to do with thromboembolic uh, uh, complication. But um, yes, that was a uh, sorry period when we, you know, when we started with not trying to understand all the ramification of the uh, uh, effect of the FC uh, portion of the antibody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.